0: Welcome to Insight Faster, a podcast by MDPI. Open access is only really open if it's open to everyone. So we decided to sit down with some of our researchers to let them explain some of the fantastic work that they do. We'll talk about what it means to them, but also how it's going to affect all of us. Thanks for tuning in. Unequivocal, inevitable, irreversible. With the release of the latest IPCC report in August 2021, The adjectives used to describe our effect on the climate became more urgent, more damning, and less surprising. Whilst in the face of a problem that seems almost incomprehensibly large and complex, it is easy to and perhaps comforting to just brace yourself and hope for the best. Today, I'm joined by two researchers who have been preparing for some of the outcomes that we don't want to think about, but that we might not be able to ignore for too much longer. Professor Alid Jones and Nick King from the Global Sustainability Institute have conducted an analysis of the potential for the formation of nodes of persisting complexity, which they published in Sustainability. Thanks for joining me on Insight Faster, guys. That's great. Right, thanks, Jeff. Good afternoon. So for a bit of context, could you tell us a little about your research and work at the Global Sustainability Institute?
1: Sure. Just um, so I'll take that one uh, just in terms of a set of context. So we are a research institute. We're about 10 years old, just over 10 years old. And the majority of our research looks at how people respond to global challenges. Um, So really, we're interested in transformations, sustainable transformations. And about half our work looks at risk and how risk propagates or cascades through the system. So if you have a extreme drought in one region of the world, uh, which impacts on food, how does that impact on the food system itself? What does that mean for individuals living in different countries? What does it mean for global trade? What does it mean for finance? So we've been looking at these sort of complex interactions in the systems um, for, for just over a decade now.
0: And so you've recently completed this analysis of the potential for nodes of persisting complexity. Could you tell us a little bit about the term complexity and why it's such a useful term in examining the progress of human society?
2: Complexity is um, a term that that kind of has different different shades of meaning in different contexts. But the the complexity that we're focused on in this paper um, is largely inspired by the work of Joseph Tainter. So he's produced a series of works, but most famously the um, uh, 1988 book concerning the, the role of complexity in the collapse of um, civilizations, uh, primarily historical civilizations. And the reason why this this kind of a description of complexity is, has been particularly useful, and why we explored it in this paper, is because it's a it's kind of a more kind of subjective, qualitative description of it, and it's really captured by descriptions of complexity as just society. Acquiring kind of new systems, so political systems, social systems, things like government, bureaucracy, that basically enable the society to manage more information, more energy, more resource throughput. And what Tainter kind of explored is the idea of this complexity has a sort of an evolving behaviour through time. So it's, um, it's kind of a boon to, to human societies to begin with. So increasing the amount of government of bureaucracy allows you to do more things. So you can, you can organise people to grow more crops or to acquire more resources from mining. But over time, as you add more and more complexity, its, it's return, the amount of benefit it brings starts to diminish. Up to the point where it becomes kind of neutral, it's not adding anything. And beyond that, it becomes a burden. So to maintain this complexity requires more effort and energy than you get from it. And that's, and the sort of the central thesis of of Tainter's work is that is the common factor in all. Uh, societal collapses that have happened through history he sought to find a sort of grand unifying theory of collapse and it has been explored more recently by some researchers who've applied system dynamics modeling to it to see whether this thesis kind of holds water when analyzed from a slightly more quantitative aspect and um, you know these researchers concluded that it does it seems to be a robust kind of way of thinking about how societies um, perform and evolve and that's why we we wanted to make that kind of a central tenet of what we explored here, that complexity is a golden thread characteristic of societies. And what one of the most important messages is that complexity has reached unparalleled heights since industrialization happened a couple of centuries ago. So what we see around us now, this globalized society that covers most of the surface of the earth, that's built vast mega cities, that's populated by eight billion people, or well, near enough is the absolute pinnacle of complexity. The socio-economic complexity achieved by historic societies like the Romans is, you know, it pales in comparison to what we've achieved now.
0: And this drive towards complexity, I kind of imagine it as we're a clown who's spinning 10 plates at the same time, whilst also juggling, whilst also riding a unicycle. And it makes me wonder whether at some point it might all come crashing down.
2: Yeah, so that was that was kind of the warning that was in Tainter's work. There, there's a benefit to that complexity and that benefit diminishes with time until it eventually becomes a disbenefit. And to imagine that we're different from historical societies is probably probably hubris. We imagine because we've developed technologies um, and harnessed energy resources that historical societies didn't have. I think there's a popular you know, viewpoint that we're immune to that. But really, we're so reliant on fossil fuel energy and technological systems like the internet that we're probably, if anything, more vulnerable than those historical societies were. Because if any of those systems fail, we're in a very vulnerable position. And um, as Aled alluded to during the introduction, because our society is so interlinked, so interconnected, things that start to go wrong in one place can cascade through that system and risks aren't localized. So that's another reason why we're so so vulnerable.
0: So could you tell us a little about some of the limits to this complexity that either we might have hit already or that we're going to surpass in the future?
1: So just in terms of those limits, there's lots of different views about whether we pass particular limits or whether we are, you know, close to particular limits. There's the, the limits to growth book that was published in 1972 by the Club of Rome that looked at some of the limits they were facing uh, at the time and they were worried about, which were mostly around environmental limits or food limits. So this was interesting in whether you know through pollution and through climate change are we overloading the global system so that we go beyond the tipping point uh, at which case you get runaway climate change. So there's the sort of climate change is an obvious sort of tipping point, potentially one of the limits. Uh, Others are biodiversity, and we're facing a mass extinction of biodiversity. We don't really know what the impact of the loss of biodiversity is on our systems. So There's a sort of complex interaction between biodiversity and the resilience of our ecosystems, including our food systems. Uh, And we're not completely sure what a global loss of biodiversity will mean for that. Uh, You've got other limits, which are more social limits uh, around inequality. So, you know, at what point does a society become too unequal that uh, you get some of the social tipping points potentially being met? And then you've got other other things which aren't necessarily limits, but they're, they're shocks to the system that, that could bring it down, especially a complex system like a pandemic. So we've been pretty close to closing the world down completely over the last couple of years. So if COVID had been slightly more virulent or slightly more deadly, you know, that we could have seen even bigger impacts than we saw Uh, over the last couple of years. And then you've got other things that come left of field, like IT. We're so reliant on information, technology, and communications around the world that if anything went to disrupt that, then it could have huge repercussions for how society works, how we manage things, and in particular, how we manage things moving around the world. And We saw the outcry a couple of days ago when Facebook was lost for, for about six hours. Uh, and people didn't know what to do with themselves but you, you know that kind of an accidental deletion of you know a particular router just taking down bits of the internet could have major impacts because of how reliant we are on that type of thing. So there are lots of different limits whether they're physical limits or whether they're shocks that happen into a complex system aren't necessarily limits but those sorts of things could certainly disrupt this very
0: complex system. So given the incredibly complex system and societies that we have now and the limits that you've just described, Alad, is there the potential for sustainable complexity or are we on this path to collapse but we can't divert from?
1: That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean I think there is a potential for sustainable complexity, However, it's a really narrow path. And the issue is if anything comes in and disrupts it, then we go to a different equilibrium. So we're kind of in an equilibrium at the moment where everything's just okay, a just-in-time system, planet which is just about okay to feed the seven and a half, eight billion people that are currently there. The problem is that, you know, things happen. And so trying to hope that nothing happens that will disrupt this really complex system is hopeful rather than actually planning so the message of the paper and what we're trying to look at here is that you know collapse can happen the overarching thing that we're trying to do in the gsi is to look at how do you prevent that sort of collapse and one of the key things is a understanding the complexity how do these things actually propagate how is it all linked and be can we reduce that complexity? There's no reason why nobody in the world knows how the economy works. You know, we did create it over a long time and it's become its own thing. But the fact that nobody can clearly tell you what money does and how it works and how it goes through the economy and all the interconnections. And if something happened over in a country somewhere, what impact it would have on London. That's dangerous at best. So I think the importance is we need to better understand the complexity and then simplify it as much as we can. We obviously want to continue having the lifestyles that we do, but we can simplify that and lower our footprints as well. Really central to maintaining complexity
2: is a supply of energy. So um, whether you look at it from a very human standpoint or from a very arm's length kind of view of thermodynamics, having this supply of energy is is absolutely central to it. And that's as we've seen recently, something that's it, it, we've done fantastically well to have maintained it in the way we've done until now, but it, there are signs that there, you know, there are vulnerabilities. Um, the transition to renewables is kind of just assumed to be something that can be done easily, but we're swapping one energy system for another, which um, in many ways are very, very different different characteristics and the expectation that we can just maintain complexity as it exists now with renewables and, and other energy sources and, and maintain a way of life that people have become accustomed to as Alice mentioned. These are all open questions and um, there's lots of research but uh, as yet the practicalities of, of how we're going to manage this is a, is a very open question.
0: Well I think it's a question that we My hopefully won't find out the answer to for too long, but when we do, it'll certainly be, I imagine, one that we can't even think of at the moment. In your article, you go through a few of the methods of collapse or the potential methods of collapse of our very complex society. Could you talk us through a few of them now in terms of how this might play out?
2: So we, in the paper, we explore two kinds of, I mean, if you like, you can call them modes of collapse. But these are based on existing research and points of view. Of course, any sort of collapse is the kind of behaviour of a complex system. So it's inherently chaotic and unpredictable. And um, the kind of seminar work such as Limits to Growth, try not to make any comments on, on how this might happen. Because that's just no, no—it's impossible to predict. But nonetheless, we describe these two kind of modes because the academic literature does explore it in this very conceptual way. And um, one is the, the long descent view, so the idea that society will sort of degrade in quite a slow way. So as energy resources become more scarce, more expensive. Lifestyles will sort of slowly change. We'll end up just driving less as petrol becomes more expensive. Uh, flying will become the preserve of the rich as it as it originally was. And it's just this slow change, which would be a gentle descent. And possibly it's the sort of thing that would happen sufficiently slowly enough that um, the over-generation, your grandchildren would scarcely remember what lifestyles we live, or it would be sort of anecdotes about how wasteful we were, that sort of thing. The alternative is... Um, a few points forward by a researcher in Italy, Ugo Bardi, which is the idea of a Seneca. And Seneca's it's named after, um, I believe he was a politician in ancient Rome, who described it, which is that, um, essentially, I, I don't remember the exact wording, but the idea was that complexity builds slowly but can fail quickly. So this is the idea that um, something could happen in a global economy. As Alan alluded to, it could be a, a wide range of things. It could be a war, an energy shock, A cyber attack, you know, any number of things that propagates quickly in a way that's far beyond our control. This is something that would happen to us rather than us being able to see coming or do anything really much about And things would unravel very quickly. So this is the the nightmare scenario of, of, uh, you know, media depictions of it. So that would certainly that would produce probably a worse outcome. But in terms of, you know, which has the higher likelihoods, that's, again, there's differing points of view. But um, the the behaviour of complex systems, other complex systems, is probably quite indicative. And um, it is clear that systems can flip once they're they're pushed far out of equilibrium, and they can rapidly change into different modes. You can observe this in different physical systems. So it seems that um, the possibility of Seneca-style collapses is one that we certainly can't discount much as uh, it's um, not something that any rational person would want to contemplate.
0: In the event of either of these modes of collapse, your paper really focuses on what happens to us as opposed to the actual method and cause of the collapse itself. And one of the concepts you mentioned before moving on to the nodes of persisting complexity are collapse lifeboats, which is more, I think, what people consider now when they think about the fate of humans in the event of either of these sorts of collapses. Could you tell me a little about collapse lifeboats and how they exist and how they're kind of spoken about nowadays?
2: So it's quite it's quite a niche thing really it, it's uh, certain people, certain researchers have talked in generalities around this idea notably James Lovelock he's got a series of books about the you know the follow-on from his um, his guy hypothesis and he's, he's kind of described what he perceives it to be and um, essentially they're the regions of the world that may, that may have climate characteristics and things like that it, that would allow populations to, to persist in the event that um, you know much of the world may become uninhabitable due to the effects of climate change, things like that. But um, I think one of the defining characteristics of this kind of concept that sort of seems common to all of the existing descriptions is that it's something quite deliberate. so people would seek out these places, you know populations would move there. And to a degree, we're already kind of seeing it in a very small way in the billionaires are buying up land in places like New Zealand, the north of Canada, places that are, you know, may not be affected by climate change as much as other regions of the world. So, yeah, this, this lifeboat concept is a bit diffuse. It's no, there's no sort of agreed definition of it, but the if you look at um, all the places it's described, those seem to be the sort of common characteristics.
0: And how do these lifeboats differ from the term that you coin in your paper of nodes of persisting complexity?
2: So we we were seeking to sort of define something that was subtly different, but definitely not that kind of, to move away from this idea that there were places that would be deliberately kind of sought out. So we're trying to think more in terms of system behavior. So a system that's going through one of these transitions, label it as a collapse or 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 anything else but basically where what has certain characteristics that means it would potentially evolve differently through that system change so this is kind of taking the human agency out of it and just saying what has Biophysi- what areas have biophysical characteristics that would mean they may be able to retain a higher degree of this kind of socio-economic complexity that we've talked about relative to, uh, to kind of the general picture? So it's more trying to, like I said, take away the human agency and just say, as a system goes through this, this phase transition, what areas may buck the general trend?
0: And there are certain characteristics that lend themselves to a territory becoming a node of persisting complexity. And these characteristics, carrying capacity, isolation and self-sufficiency, are to some extent incredibly rooted in the biophysical. And in your research led to New Zealand, Iceland and the United Kingdom scoring some of the highest. Why are these concepts so rooted in in the biophysical?
2: Well, carrying capacity is probably the most important one and the other two kind of do link to that. Carrying capacity is um, a well-established concept in, in things like biology, resource economics. So it's simply what population of humans can give an area of land support in terms of food production, availability of fresh water, essentially the, the essentials of life. At the moment, carrying capacity is completely blurred by a globalised system of, of supplying food and resources because... Places that have no agricultural land to speak of can live extremely extravagant lifestyles. And that's because they can bring in food and water or virtual water from faraway places at a reasonable cost. Because for the time being, fossil fuels for shipping and flying things in is still affordable. So carrying capacity doesn't feel very relevant in our globalised society, but hard physical reality is, is, still, is still there. We can't ignore that, and in a in a scenario where these supply lines fail, or just or for various reasons, no longer relevant, you suddenly have to deal with what you've got locally. Um, so that's why carrying capacity is it's kind of the thing that's always always sort of there. We've managed to kind of circumvent that on a temporary basis while there's been these global supply lines, but should they fail, suddenly local carrying capacity will once again become very relevant. The isolation question was one of the ones that we we were keen to be careful around in our our research because it's one that certainly has the potential to be slightly misconstrued. We want to be very clear that this is nothing to do with any commentary or discussion of immigration or movement of people in a current context. So the scenarios we're talking about, you might have mass movements of people, people simply looking to move from areas that are... There might be conflict or a lack of resources. The carrying capacity isn't very high, and that would happen in a completely con- sort of uncontrolled way, potentially. And it wouldn't resemble anything that we understand to mean in terms of immigration in the current context. Anywhere that isn't able to prevent mass movement into its to its kind of territory would be that would be a vulnerability essentially. So anywhere that's um, an island is essentially in a slightly stronger position. But um, that one's, you know, that's, again, in this kind of system context, very, a very difficult thing to predict. But this isolation measure was really just a crude assessment of where where would be able to sort of say it has a, an integral territory that might not be subject to kind of these mass movements of people. And um, the subsufficiency measure is really just a comment on in the event that global supply lines were no longer in operation, in force, what ability would a a country or a territory have to be able to maintain those kind of fundamentals of civilization of complexity so things like an electrical grid um, an ability to move things around within its territory you know water goods things like that so anywhere that's got some pre-existing manufacturing capacity know-how within its population would probably stand a better chance of being able to maintain that, that complexity So they're quite kind of broad brush definitions, and we're very open about that in the descriptions of our our methodology, that it's not a highly complex kind of analysis of this. But because there's so much uncertainty and so much kind of difficulty in pinning down these definitions, attempting to make it a sort of more complex analysis attempting to apply modelling of any sort probably wouldn't produce a better result. So this kind of this qualitative analysis we felt was probably proportionate to what we were trying to do. And just, uh, you know,
1: since the papers come out, we've had various discussions with other academics and, and other people in business and government just about the choice of the measures we've put in there and You know, in particular on the isolation one, as Nick said, that's it's not a comment on current migration or on climate justice, really. You know, people are saying, well, you should let everyone in if you've, you know, if the UK is responsible for a lot of emissions in the past, then the UK has a responsibility to to let everyone in. But you know, this is in the eventuality that the entire world is collapsing. So, uh, the sort of question of what isolation means. Is an important one to consider when you're looking at this sort of collapse of complex society. Others, while sort of saying you should let everyone in, said actually a better measure would be military power rather than isolation. Because um, people were questioning, you know, why the, the US is just outside the top five in the scoring that's, uh, that's in the paper, and, and you know, people argue that it doesn't matter that somewhere like the US is not an island, not completely isolated, because it can just send its military to its borders and protect itself that way so some sort of shorthand way of saying can you physically keep your own complexity going while everything else is is collapsing was an important you know thought experiment within this context and also others have said you know actually countries would collapse and it would be regions in countries so if you had a valley that you could protect or something like that then that will be more important but you know there are lots of complexities and lots of other ways of looking at it i think the important thing here is we try to keep it simple to to do these sorts of measures so keeping countries as they are at the moment and and doing a physical measure of isolation rather than some uh, adjusted value of military power or economic power or something else that that would help them to remain isolated and that's that, that was the easiest way we saw which is why that isolation measure was in there.
0: What helped me to understand it, at least when we were doing a bit of research for this podcast, was that military might, economic power, GDP, things like that, as much as they have some impact in this context of a societal, global societal collapse, I think it takes a bit of an imaginative leap to understand all of these very complex systems collapsing in on themselves and then certain economic and military. Just some of the markers that we use to talk about countries being more developed or less developed at the moment might themselves cease to uh, have as much meaning. And that's when these hard biophysical realities become more important. And I think that your study in particular really emphasised that and helped me at least, to contextualise us within a more ecological system that will fundamentally have little regard for which countries have got the best scores in terms of the biggest military and the the, the most money.
2: Absolutely. And um, you've got to remember that a military is probably one of the most complex systems that countries operate. And the expectation that it will just continue in that sort of scenario is... That's, uh, of course, open to discussion. But um, in recent history, uh, we've had countries that have not fully collapsed, but certainly um, changed a great deal in a short period of time, most notably the Soviet Union collapsing and barely managed to keep its military going. So this kind of argument that 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 would be highly relevant, I think that's, uh, that's easy to challenge. And as you said, that's when those hard physical realities, biophysical realities, suddenly kick in again as relevant they always have been we've just temporarily circumvented them it's in this scenario that they, they reassert themselves
0: so given these realities and given the outcome of your research what would be some of the lessons that could be learned by governments by policymakers and by people from what you found when you were putting together your paper
2: so the the aim of this paper was to try and um create a kind of a hopeful situation and kind of a hopeful advice. All of this talk of collapsing complexity was really just scene-setting, and um, it's not entirely surprising that much of the media coverage, seeking sensations, as they so often do, focused on that kind of apocalyptic viewpoint, and that's obviously a very important aspect of the paper. It it really was scene-setting more than anything. This is is what could happen. And then that was the foundation on which we built this idea that there's still plenty of degrees of freedom for building resilience, and in fact, these nodes of persisting complexity, by analysing them, we can highlight what what it is about them that could be cascaded out to the rest of the world, you know, to, to ultimately sort of reduce the likelihood of us ever getting into this situation in the first place. So the, the main message we wanted to get across was that there, is, there are things that governments can be doing to increase their resilience to follow the lead of these these places that could be nodes of persisting complexity whether that's just through natural features or whether the way that those countries are organized but probably one of the most important of those lessons is the idea that continuously increasing complexity is is potentially risky potentially a bit of a fool's errand um it's kind of what a global economic system based around growth kind of steers us down that path that just more and more complexity more and more stuff more and more energy use is just well as uh, as mrs thatcher famously said there is no other way well we're we're challenging that we're saying absolutely there, there are other ways in fact the other ways are infinitely preferable to this This just ever speeding up race to in- increase complexity on a finite planet. So moving away to kind of lifestyles with lower complexity, seeking to for nations to kind of stick within their carrying capacity as far as possible, not be so reliant on bringing energy and food in from faraway places. It's this kind of combination of seeking a better balance with these biophysical constraints. Is, is the way the world should be going if we want to reduce the risk of collapse of complexity.
0: I also read a lot of the media coverage, and I did think that they, to some extent, missed the point in that it was very much centred on the winners and the losers. And as you say, the, the potential for collapse that does precede the discussion of nodes of persisting complexity. But if you consider it as a whole, is it something that gives you hope what you found, or is it a cause for alarm?
2: Personally, I'd say the latter. There's a lot of fine words circulating at the moment Been a lot of refreshed and renewed warnings coming out from the scientific community, not least the, uh, the recent IPCC, the latest report, which paints a, a dire picture. And we've got the COP26 conference coming up imminently. But is anything really changing? I think it's the young generation that are kind of seeing things as they are more than ever. Famously, Greta Thunberg, she, she's not afraid to call out politicians, it seems, and just tell them, you're not doing enough. So I think she's probably the voice that we should be listening to the most. So there's cause for hope if we change, but there's not much sign of that really at the moment. Global civilization undoubtedly has a, a huge kind of inertia and momentum to it, and we're not going to turn this shit around easily, but that's why papers such as ours kind of doesn't. We didn't pull our punches too much because the time for doing that, I think, is past. We need to be sounding the alarm bells, and that, that's one of the things we were we were trying to do. Whilst also tempering that message with things are bad, but there is still there's still time, there's still flexibility to kind of shift out of the, this kind of view of the economy. It must just get bigger, but that there's so many measures of why that's not working. Inequality grows environmental degradation increases, it's becoming pretty hard for anyone to deny that climate change is starting to manifest in real world effects, you know, floods, wildfires, etc. So the alarm bells, they're ringing, but they need to be ringing louder. But that's
1: my, my take on it.
0: And what about yourself, Alad?
1: Well, yes. So I, I give a lot of talks which focus on the apocalypse and uh, so have a, a sort of pessimistic outlook in those talks in terms of the number of challenges that we do face And in particular, the complexity of the world that we're trying to change. So it's kind of, it's easy to write down a solution to all of the world's challenges. There's enough capacity to grow food for everyone. There's enough energy for everyone. There's enough stuff for everyone to have this type of lifestyle that would give them, uh, you know, fulfillment and well-being and prosperity. The problem is you wouldn't start from where we are now. And so the hope in me is that we can see that everyone can have a good life and it would be a good life and it would be a, a life full of knowledge generation and innovation and change and, um, and prosperity. But there are a lot of people with vested interests who are interested in the complexity and make a lot of money out of the complexity and there are a lot of people who don't understand the complexity and actually most people don't understand the complexity even those people with the vested interests. So trying to unravel where we are now to where we need to be is really difficult. It would be better to have a second planet and start again. We obviously can't do that. So I'm, I'm sort of optimistic that there are increasing voices saying this isn't good enough. And also we're seeing some of the really big impacts already happening. And even those people with the vested interests are starting to say, actually, maybe this isn't good enough. We, we can see that our own vested interests are going to get impacted by this now. So maybe it is time to act. But unravelling this hugely complex system it isn't going to be easy so that we can just understand how risk goes through it how how we are interconnected and do, and build resilience into the system so so hopeful but it's not an easy task
0: seems like the time is now really In the last few minutes of our episodes of Insight Faster, we've been asking our guests to come up with a few things for our listeners to look out for in in their field in the next few years. These could be TV programmes, conferences, future publications, policy announcements, anything. So what's next, guys?
1: So, I mean, I think that, well, the key thing for complexity and collapse will be the outcomes of COP26, so the UN Conference of the Parties in Glasgow at the end of November this year so 2021 and you know this is where as Nick was just saying Greta Thunberg has been calling to, for policymakers to stop the blah 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 and actually put in place some action so if we do see some clear action coming out of COP26 in terms of and that's just attack climate change then there will be a suite of policies coming out from different national governments around the world in the next year or so to radically change everything we do on the energy system so you know the UK government announcing that it wants to go zero carbon in its energy system by 2035 we've already seen announcements about rollout of electric vehicles in a similar sort of time scale you know this is now we're now we used to talk about you know this is by 2050 and it, when we started the, the sort of big climate change conferences that was in 70 years time We're now talking about changing our entire energy and transport system in 10 to 15 years time. So we've had a long time to do it. We've done not very much. We've now got a really short space of time to change the entire world. That's going to involve a huge amount of policy. So I'd expect to see a lot of policy change and announcements and a lot of things coming out of business about how they're going to respond to it and, and innovation. Green jobs, green skills. It's a massive opportunity for countries to take the lead. You've then got big, you know, biodiversity, you've got big conversations going on about actually, how do we tackle this? We're, we're about 20 years behind on biodiversity compared to climate change. Nobody really understands how biodiversity links into this complex system or what impacts that has. So I think we'll, we'll see more action on that, although it will be slower. I think the other one that I would highlight as well, just in terms of things that people should look out for is actually more of the leaks that we've seen in the last year about wealth and how the system does work for some individuals and they try and protect themselves from the vagaries of this complex system by using its complexity to hide wealth and move it around the world. And the more this is done on IT and people don't understand the complexity of the IT so hackers can get in and find the information and then leak it, I think the inequality in the world will be much more transparent. So more and more leagues, although we've just had a huge one, showing you know how money is moved around, where it's moved around, and that level of inequality. As people start to see that much more transparently, there will be, a, I believe, there will be a, a huge call for change, and no longer will be able to say, "Well, we're doing our best in London." To try and make sure it's not one of the capitals of, you know, places where you can just buy property and and hide your wealth in that way. You know, the UK government's had to respond because of these leaks, and it will continue having to respond, and other governments will have to do the same. So, you know, I think with, I think hopefully there will be a movement on the inequality that we're seeing both within countries and globally that needs to be tackled to be able to really address some of these these problems. I think I'd um, I just echo a lot of what I've
2: said there. That I think this diffusion of the seriousness of the situation into, into the public consciousness, into the sort of collective consciousness. It's really heartening to see that the message seems to be really getting out there, and that's thanks to the efforts of organisations like Extinction Rebellion. They're really pushing hard with this. But um, I know I read recently that um, climate change has really moved up the priorities that the British public say the government should be thinking about. So it seems that finally the message is getting out there, and you can probably anticipate true system change when the mass of people are kind of behind it. Um, for a long time, that wasn't true. It was kind of seen as a bit of a fringe thing, or very much kind of living within the world of academia. But out in the real world, people just had to get on with their jobs and paying their bills, etc. But I think there's a sort of dawning realization and understanding that this will affect all of that, um, and that lifestyles will probably have to change. Some things we take for granted maybe they, we won't be able to do them so much. But if people understand the enormity of this problem, they might be a bit more willing to accept a sort of less extravagant lifestyles and things like that. That said, you only have to walk around and see the number of SUVs in the road and, and realise we've still got a long way to go. So it's a mixed message of, of hope, but also the enormity of the challenge, as, as Alex said, is uh, pretty clear.
0: Exactly. And I think work like yours and work like some of the other guests that we've spoken to on Insight Faster recently demonstrate that there is work going on and there's fantastic research going on all over the world. And so it's not all lost just yet. People often speak about the, in inverted commas, feeling of being part of something bigger. And I never really know quite what they mean because it's used both in the sense of this is too big for me to have an impact on and my role is important in this larger thing. But speaking to you both today has helped me to understand the human consequences of exceeding the limits of our role in a much bigger ecological system. And that the discussion of nodes of persisting complexity should be centered around global resilience rather than any consideration of winners and losers. We'll provide links to everything we've talked about today in the podcast description, including a link to Nick and Aled's paper in sustainability, which I really encourage you to read, and links to some of the press coverage that their paper received. If you're interested in publishing with MDPI, you can find info on how to do that on mdpi.com, along with links to our social media. I also want to know what you want to hear about on insight faster so email me at jasper.clow at mdpi.com with your suggestions alid nick thank you so much for joining me for our discussion today
2: my pleasure thank you very much
0: thanks jasper thank you and thank you for listening i've been jasper clough and this has been insight faster